0: Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you all for being on time. Uh, You should have received uh, a little uh, handout in the back that uh, we'll try to use as we go through our our text this morning. Uh, Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. Oh, can't hear me. I think it's because everybody's talking. Welcome uh, to, uh, we're doing a class called Eyewitnesses of His Majesty. Um, What we're trying to do is just to ponder uh, several passages in the Gospels that help us to consider the glory and grace of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, uh, a passage, a very familiar passage as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. But before we, we get there, Uh, I did want to uh, start off with, I always show you guys artwork at the beginning. Um, This is not Rembrandt. Um, I don't know if you could tell. Uh, This is actually a a painting of someone maybe you've heard of. Um, the The person who's kind of the center of the, right there. That's Muhammad. And he's entering Mecca. This is 630 uh, AD, and if you know the story of Islam, uh, Muhammad entered Mecca on a war horse. You can see it right there, and he had 400 mounted men and about 10,000 soldiers, and as you know, um, the way that Islam spread uh, was through the sword. And so he had acquired through his life fame, lots of followers, power, uh, lots of wealth, and of course many, many wives. And so uh, here's, a, here's another painting. Um, he's got a veil on here, but there he is again uh, on his war horse. And uh, it, this, this depicts kind of the battle for Mecca. And uh, the reason I I bring this up is uh, just the the striking contrast that we're going to find this morning as we open our Bibles to Mark 10. So, Muhammad, he entered Jerusalem, uh, or sorry, he entered Mecca on a war horse with warriors, and it was bow the knee or face the sword. And yet, what we're going to find this morning as we as we look at the, this wonderful passage in Mark chapter 10, is that the Lord Jesus Christ could not be more opposite. You'll remember, how did he enter Jerusalem? Not on a war horse, but what? On a donkey. There were palm branches waving in the air. And he didn't come to Jerusalem to kill. He came to Jerusalem to lay down his life for his enemies. And so we have in this, even in the founding of these two, as it were, faiths, as it were, historically, we see this incredible contrast between what true greatness is. Is true greatness, is it found through might and through the power of the sword? Or is it found through humble self-sacrifice For the good of others, and so the question I want us to think about this uh, morning—it's a good question for us to ponder as we pray and ask God to bless our time—is what do you want Jesus to do for you in 2024? What do you want Jesus to do for you in 2024? Well, let me pray for us. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask. O Lord, that by the Spirit of God and through the Word of God, that you would now open our eyes to see the glory and the grace of the Son of God. So to that end, Father, open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful Word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son who lives with you, who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. So again, we're looking at Mark 10, uh, 32 to 45 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Uh, Really quickly, if this is the first time you've been to this class, uh, welcome. Uh, Our aim is to grow in seeing and savoring the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Um, The reason we open our Bibles is not simply to learn more facts or to get more data. It's to meet the risen Christ by his Spirit in his word. It's to behold the glory of the Son of God. The reason that's so central in the Christian life, beloved, is that we are changed and transformed by what we behold. 2 Corinthians 3:18 Paul tells us beholding the glory of the Lord in the gospel we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another in other words what we behold we become like and so that's that's the point if you, I don't know about you I want I want to be changed <laughs> I don't want to be the same in 24 as I was in 23 I want to I be more like Christ. And so the way we become like Christ is by seeing Christ revealed in his gospel by faith. And we look for his glory in the word. That's why I read the Bible. Um, I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Uh, he says, he's talking to preachers, but you could apply this to all of us. We ought to expend our energies. Notice these verbs, admiring exploring, expositing, and extolling Jesus Christ. That, that's what we should do when we open our Bibles. We should expend our energy, not being passive, not just kind of looking at the words and checking a box. We should, we should attack the Bible, looking, ransacking it, for the, 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 and exposing it, looking for ways to extol the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I've mentioned this a few times. We have these rules in my house uh, for interpreting the Bible. Really simple. It, I mean, this is like a hermeneutics class in four, in four rules. So if you just pay attention, look at the words. Words have meanings. So give prayerful and careful attention to the words of Scripture. Um, then you want to put those words in context. What comes before? What comes after? Um, context is king. Um, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I didn't make this up. If you take a text out of a context, what are you left with? A con, there it is. Y'all, y'all need to drink some coffee, wake up now. That, Larry always laughs at that joke, amen? Scripture interprets scripture. We want to look at the whole Bible to understand any parts of the Bible. The, the best commentary you can ever find on scripture is scripture, Right? We're going to do that even this morning. And as we do it, we want to look for the glory and grace of Jesus because the Bible is all about him. So I'm going to start reading in verse 32 of Mark's gospel, chapter 10. Let me just briefly set the context. Let's remember where we are in the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been ministering up in the north, and Jesus has turned, and now he's on the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and we know what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus has already told his disciples explicitly twice that he's going to Jerusalem to die. So he knows what awaits him. And this is the third time he brings this up again. And so we're going to take this opening paragraph and then we're going to look at the second half of this passage. This, this first part tells us that he will die. And the second part really shows us why he is going to Jerusalem to die. Okay? So let's look at this. We'll dig into this part and then we'll jump to the next part. And in your notes, this is uh, this first point. Just two points this morning. This first point is the holy determination of Jesus. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Just as a heads up, when you're reading the Gospels, it doesn't matter if you're coming from the north, south, east, or west. You're always going up to Jerusalem. Why is that? Elevation. So when you see going up, don't think they're coming from the south. They're coming down from the north, but you're always going up to Jerusalem because it's up high. Okay, They're going up to Jerusalem. And notice, what is Jesus doing? It's important. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. We'll come back to that. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles we'll come back to that phrase too and notice the detail of what the Savior says is going to happen when they get there and they they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will kill him and after three days he will rise so we're going to dig into this. This is, this is, this is striking. Um, when you're reading the Bible, beloved, when you read something in the Bible that's strange, that's a, that's a cue for you to stop and meditate, ponder, ask questions. And when I read that passage, this part, these first two verses, verse 32 especially, is strange, isn't it? Do you, do, you, do you find it strange? I mean, we're, we, we know the second part, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, but this opening part is kind of odd. It's not the way I would think people would react, but notice verse 32 the holy determination of Jesus. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and then notice this Mark tells us this one detail. They're they're walking as a group, but who's leading the group? Yeah, he's walking ahead of them. Okay, so far, so good. Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. This is the part that's weird. And they were what? They were amazed, and those who followed were what? Afraid. They were frightened. There's something with, about Jesus leading them in the front. There's something about his manner. There's something about his, maybe his face. There's something about this action that's causing the disciples to be astonished, amazed, and even frightened. Now, when I read that, I, I ask, well, what, what's going on here? Well, I want us to just meditate on this for a minute. I think what we're intended to see is that there's, there's, some, there's some illusions here in the Old Testament that might help us understand the holy determination of the Savior. Perhaps they're afraid because Jesus has already told them twice what's going to happen. But Let's think about this for a minute. One commentator put it like this. This is amazing. Despite the grave ascent, that is to go to Jerusalem, Jesus is not lagging behind. You have anybody in your family that lags behind? I I was often, uh, you know, one of the ones in the family. When I was growing up, I have an older brother, younger sister, and I was often the one who was out looking at my watch at the car. And I had a sibling who will not be named his name's Chris. He, it, was like, it was always like, where's Chris? You know, he was always lagging behind, right? Well, Jesus is not lagging behind. He's not lagging behind like a prisoner going to the gallows, but rather he is leading the way. It's another comment just to help us think about this. I love this. Mark pictures Jesus striding out in front of his disciples and those who accompanied them, there was something about him that had a profound effect on all of them. It was a sense of almost, listen, frightening determination in his whole bearing. The degree degree of commitment which Jesus manifested was something they had never encountered before. I know in this room there are some of us that are very, very determined people. But there was something about Jesus that day. There was something about his holy determination that struck them not only with amazement, but with fear. They'd never seen determination like this. And I think Mark is doing something Amazing. So if you've ever studied the gospel of Mark, you know that his favorite Old Testament book is Isaiah. Much of the gospel of Mark is written through the lens of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. Now, what would be one of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah? What would be one of them? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And if you look at basically chapter 40 to chapter 55 of Isaiah, you have several servant passages, servant songs. Sometimes the servant is Israel. Sometimes the servant is an individual Israelite who suffers and redeems Israel and the nations. And so this suffering servant section of Isaiah, it kind of, it, technically it provides the narrative substructure of God, the gospel according to Mark. It's kind of like the frame of the gospel. It's, it's, it's all over the place. And so if you look in your Bibles, when I, when I encounter a strange verse, I'll often do what I've been telling you all to do every single class. Where where do you find some hints in your Bible? Not your study Bible, but in the middle, in your margins. Where, what, what are they called? Cross-references. Say it after me. Cross-references are our friends. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Okay. So cross-references, beloved, that's where the glory is. And if you look at your, at least in my Bible, when I look at my cross-references for this w- strange verse about Jesus being, you know, uh, Leading the way, going out front, they're frightened. One of the cross references in my Bible is this one right here Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And so I flip over there and I read this, and this is what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, notice this, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You're like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? When you look at the cross references in Luke 9:51, do you know what passage is alluded to here? It's on your notes. Isaiah 50, 4 and following. You're thinking, what is this? Like a, a Bible rabbit trail. Well, you're gonna see it in a second. I want you to listen to Isaiah 50. This is one of the servant songs. This is, listen, this is an Old Testament passage. It's a prophecy. About the suffering servant. And what makes this passage so interesting, beloved, is the servant is not being written about, he's actually speaking. So these are the prophetic words from the mouth of the future suffering servant himself. What does he say? This is what he says He says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Look at verse six. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. And notice this phrase. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Beloved, Jesus sets his face like flint for Jerusalem. He knows that spitting and beating and scourging And crucifixion awaits him there. But he knows he's the servant of the Lord. And he knows with holy determination. He's going to Jerusalem to die for sinners. And the disciples see this holy determination. They see him, even in his visage. That he is committed to going to Jerusalem to die. And that brings us. To this second part, the deliverer will be delivered up. Verse 32, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And just pause for a minute. Just think about it. If you knew this is what was going to happen to you, you'd be, I would be running the other way. Jesus is leading the way. That's how much he loves you. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be, notice, delivered, it's an important verb, over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And notice this phrase, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. Do you see? What's? just disappeared. Did you see in this passage, the deliverer, right, is going to be delivered? You see that? Another, your Bible may say he's going to be handed over. He's handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. He's handed over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans. And many of us have read this passage a million times, right? We read this and we just move on. But again, beloved, if we want to slow down and ask questions and meditate, we begin to see more of the Savior's love for us. This phrase, delivered over to the Gentiles. Let's dig into that for a minute. I put in your notes, I put in your notes, Psalm 106, verse 40. Psalm 106, verse 40. Look at it with me. The psalmist, this is just one place. You could find this in other places, but this was an, this was an easy one. Psalm 106, verse 40. What does it mean to be handed over to the Gentiles? Well, the psalmist says this. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about when they were sent into exile. And notice it says, his anger was kindled against his people and he abhorred, he hated his heritage. And notice this phrase, and he gave them into the hands of the Gentiles, of the nations. And so one way to put it like this, there's one, there's one commentator that put it like this. To be handed over to the nations, when you search for that phrase in the Old Testament, it's almost uniformly used to describe God's judgment in delivering his people over to the nations. Uh, It's a shorthand to be handing them over to divine wrath. That's That's what it means. And so the idea is that he's sending them into exile They're they're, they're receiving due punishment for their sins. He's handing them over to the nations. And so, brothers and sisters, this text says Jesus is being handed over to the Gentiles. He's being handed over to the nations. And so let's ponder that for a minute. Just think about this. Jesus is telling us he is the faithful one. He's the true Israelite. He's the one who has fully obeyed his father in everything. But instead of sinful Israel being cast out and, sent and handed over to the wrath of God, Jesus Christ is headed to Jerusalem where he will suffer in the place of the guilty ones. He is headed to Jerusalem where he will be mocked, he will be spat upon, he will be beaten, he will be scourged. And worst of all, he will be handed over to the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus is leading the way. He's leading the way there. And so these are the kind of things that you can discover By simply looking at your Bible carefully and prayerfully. But do do you begin to see the amazing love of the Savior here? He didn't shrink back. He didn't go the other direction. He willingly, he gladly stepped forward and went to the cross. To bear the wrath of God in our place. That brings us, brothers and sisters, to the second thing I want us to see. The sacrificial greatness of the Savior. Just when you think the disciples couldn't be more morons, then they just outdo themselves, right? Now, real quick, just if you haven't read Mark's gospel in a while, two things. The first time Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Peter says, no way that's going to happen, buddy. And Jesus says, "Get behind me, what?" <laughs> yeah, that didn't go well. The second, it, <laughs> just a heads up, you know, if Jesus calls you Satan, that's not—it's not a good day, right? <laughs> Number two, Jesus—he—he he shares the second prediction of his death, and remember that was near the Mountain Transfiguration. And remember afterwards, what do the disciples begin to talk about amongst themselves? Who's the—who's the what? Greatest. The greatest. Strike two, right? So now you're thinking maybe by the third one, the third prediction, they'll get it. Uh, they don't get it. At least two of them don't get it. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they came up to Jesus. This is right after he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And, the, and, he, and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do what, for us whatever we ask of you. Now, how many of you are parents who've had little kids who've done the same thing? (laughs) Mommy, Daddy, I want you to do what I ask, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to ask for. You need to tell me yes before I ask it, right? And Jesus said to them, notice this question, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, well, grant us, see this, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left, notice, in your glory. So in other words, this is the question. The answer is glory. What do you want me to do for you? They responded with, we want glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. You, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And astoundingly, notice what they say. We were able. Now, you know this. I've mentioned this before. This is not much of a review, but you, you know that when Jesus is referencing the cup here, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he says, Take this what? Cup from me. Well, there's no cup in the garden. There's no physical cup. He's talking, he's using, when Jesus speaks, he's using the accent of the Old Testament. When he says, take the cup from me, when he's talking about drinking the cup, he's talking about the same thing he was talking about earlier, about being delivered over to the nations. He's talking about the wrath of God. Listen to what the Psalm says about this cup. This is Psalm 75. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it all pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God had prepared a cup of wrath that was going to be handed to the wicked. And Jesus takes that cup, the righteous one, and he's going to Jerusalem to drink that cup. And he doesn't leave one last drop, he drinks all of it for the wicked. And so they are not able to drink that cup. They will suffer. In fact, we know in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, one of these guys who's asking for this, is going to die by the sword from Herod for following Jesus. They will suffer. There's a sense in which they'll even drink the cup in that sense. They'll suffer in his name. But they're not going to suffer the way Jesus is going to suffer. And so Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those to whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant. They were upset. They were angry at James and John. And it's at this point, beloved, that Jesus begins to teach us about true greatness. What is true greatness? What does it mean to be great in the eyes of Jesus? Well, Jesus says, verse 42, they they were asking for glory. They were asking for greatness. So Jesus gives them a lesson on greatness. What does he say? And Jesus called them to him, that is all of the disciples. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Over them. You see that? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, this is shocking, must be your servant, must be your slave. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then notice, here's the reason. For even the Son of Man came not to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, brothers and sisters, if you don't take away anything from this class this morning, memorize Mark 1045. If you can remember Mark 10, 45, you can know the whole point of the Gospel of Mark. This is the whole gospel of Mark in one verse. The Son of even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Earlier, what did I tell you is the narrative substructure of the gospel of Mark. Isaiah's servant songs, the suffering servant. You see, Jesus is the son of man. He's the one who is the suffering servant. He came not to be served. Just think about that. Imagine if I told you Jesus is coming over for lunch I'm going to serve him, right? We're going to to get down on our faces and serve him. And he says, I didn't come to be served. Of all people in the universe, he deserves to be served. And he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. It's amazing. The, The one who is... Has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who holds all things together by the word of his power. The one who is holy, holy, holy. Says, I came to serve sinners. It's amazing. But this, the word that, the most amazing word in verse 45 is this word and. You say, well, how did you, what does your service, Jesus, look like? Well, it looks like sacrifice. I came to serve by giving my life as a ransom for many. So what we're going to do, this is called meditation. Meditation when... Our culture uses that word is often empty your mind, right? Uh, If you've seen, um, kiddos, what is that? Where are my kids? What's that Kung Fu Panda? Is that that? Y'all seen Kung Fu Panda, the cartoon? You know, okay, three of us. You know, inner peace, inner peace. That's not biblical meditation, okay? Biblical meditation is filling your mind with scripture and meditating on it, chewing on it like a cow chews cud, just mulling it over, running it through. And so what we're going to do these next few minutes and then we'll pray. Well, a few application points, then we'll pray. I just want to take this verse right here and meditate on it. Because this is the kind of verse where you get to it, you just don't you don't go to the next verse. You got to stop. You got to linger. Glory begs for lingering, and there's so much glory here. So let's just think about this. I've already highlighted this. I'm not going to underline it, but just The the son of man, and we know, y'all know, what passage in the Old Testament is Jesus getting the son of man from? Daniel 7, right? If you want to go look at Daniel 7, that's your homework. Daniel 7 is the son of man who receives a kingdom from the ancient of days and all nations bow down and worship him. He's the son of man, and yet he came Not to be served, but to serve. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. We're going to keep going. He's not just the servant. And this is what, I mean, Mark wants us to trust and treasure Jesus. So we trust and treasure him as our servant. But we also want to trust and treasure him as our sacrifice. Now the word sacrifice is not in the passage, but look at it again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, here's here's where I get the language of sacrifice. Notice, to what? To give his life. What does a sacrifice do? A sacrifice is typically an animal that gives its life in your place, (laughs) right? And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to Jerusalem to serve you By giving my life. I'm gonna lay down my life. He notice his life isn't taken from him, he gives it freely. He gives it freely. He's our sacrifice. You think about the next one? I I put this in the notes. He's also, there's our friend. He's been gone this whole class, our dog friend. He normally barks all the way through this class. I don't know what, I always say hi to him. I'm away in the office and now he's just saying hi back. Trust and treasure Jesus Christ. Notice he's our ransom. He's our servant. He's our sacrifice and he's our ransom. Now we don't use the word ransom. When you think of ransom, what do you think of? Yeah, like a hostage and you got to pay ransom, right? The idea is you're, you have a hostage situation. Someone's been taken. And in order to get that person free, you've got to pay money or something to get them back. Well, that language of ransom is borrowed, again, from the Old Testament. It was the, the redemption of often slaves who were bought out of slavery through a ransom price. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to give my life. And I'm going to do it as a ransom for many. You see that? As a ransom. What is Jesus going to pay to purchase your ransom? He's not going to spend gold or silver or even the blood of goats or bulls. Notice we're told, you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ. He shed his blood to purchase your redemption. He bled for you as your ransom. That's how he serves you. But there's more, one more. Trust and treasure Jesus Christ our substitute, our substitute. Where do I get that in the verse? I'm, I'm milking this verse, amen? Where do I get it? Someone, I'm not gonna tell you. So you have to, there's one word. I heard it. Four. It's a beautiful word. How glorious is that word right there? He gave his life to pay your ransom with his precious blood, and he did it for many. He did it in your place. He's your substitute. So think of it this way. Jesus is not simply your substitute perfection. He lived the perfect life we were supposed to live. He always loved God with his heart, all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor as himself. He was fully obedient to the law of God in every way. Jesus is our substitute perfection. But Jesus is also our substitute punishment. He took our place in the place of sinners. On the cross. He didn't have any sins. He died For our sins. He died as our substitute. One commentator put it like this. This is exactly what I'm trying to get at. And this is where you have to linger. That little word for. Um, Paul never got over that word for. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself, what? For me. Beloved, don't ever get over that he died for you. I love the way William Lane puts it. At the cross, this is amazing. The son of man from Daniel 7, the one who has all authority in the universe who deserves worship and honor from every living person, he took the place of the many and there happened to him what would have happened to them. He took the place of you on the cross and what happened to him should have happened to us. That's what it means for him to be our substitute. Beloved, listen real quickly before we look at this application and we'll be done. I want you to hear, like I said, the whole background of all of this is Isaiah 53 and the other servant songs. I want you to hear, when you read Isaiah 53, I want you to hear it through the lens of that substitutionary language. This is what the suffering servant came to do. Listen, this is Isaiah 53, uh, 4, and 5. 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, his wounds, we are healed. Sometimes we sing, uh, you know that song, Bearing Shame and Scoffing Rude. What's the next line? In my place, condemned he stood. In my place, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So, if you're here this morning, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you see... You need something desperately more than a prophet to tell you what to do. You need a redeemer to die for your sins. And the good news of the gospel is there is one. And his name is Christ. And he offers life and forgiveness to anyone who will turn and trust in him today. So, friend, if you don't know what that means, I'll be standing up here after the the class. I'd love to talk with you about that. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die and rise again for sinners. And he's alive today. And he offers forgiveness to all who will turn and trust in him. And so, beloved, let's just consider two closing applications and then we're done. Application number one, look to Christ and aspire to true greatness. Some of us have New Year's resolutions this year. Just scrap them and add this one, okay? You've already broken them all anyway, so you know. <laughs> New Year's resolutions last about 45 minutes, and then you're like, well, n- try next year. But this is this is one we should aspire to all of our lives, right? We should aspire to true greatness. And It's true greatness that's defined by Jesus. Well, what is is true greatness? Worldly greatness is measured by how high up you climb. Whether it's in the corporate world. I mean, pastors do this too. One of the first questions pastors will ask other pastors is what? What? How big your church? How many, this is what, how many you run in. It's awful. True greatness, according to Jesus, is not measured by how high you climb. But how low are you prepared to go for the sake of others? We're gonna, I mean, basically, this class is brought to you by Sinclair Ferguson, apparently. The way of the cross is different from the way of the world. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured not by the number of servants. So Muhammad was wrong. But rather, by our service, true greatness is seen. Not in how high up the ladder we've climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. So brothers and sisters, instead of asking the question, how can I become great this year? Ask yourself, who will I serve this year? How will I live a life of service to those around me that shows I am determined to humble myself like my Savior? That I'm willing to consider the needs of others as more important than my own. Husbands, how are we doing in laying down our lives for our brides? Christ loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her. So are we seeking to show even our wives honor by laying down our lives for them? Siblings, who, how can you serve your sibling this week? How can you think about not how I'm going to be served, but how can I serve my mom and dad? How can I serve my brother or sister? How can I serve my classmate? The world says, climb up the ladder. Jesus says, get low and serve. And he will exalt you. One of my favorite passages, I think I put it in here. Oh, it's right here. This is one of those verses you read it, it just blows my mind every time. This is amazing. Real quick, Jesus says, Jesus says, he's talking, this is Luke 12, by the way. Jesus is talking about when, when he comes back. When he comes back, the Son of Man is gonna come back. So he's telling this story. And he says, Stay dressed for action, right? Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast. So, in other words, be vigilant. I'm, I'm coming back. You better be ready when I get here. He says, be ready so that, here's the purpose, they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now look at this. This is this will make you fall off the chair. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and he'll have them recline at the table, and then the master will come and serve them. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He never stops being a servant. It's unbelievable. So, but beloved, if, if we want to grow in 2024 in Christ-likeness, let's become great at serving. If we want to become great at anything this year, let's become great at serving one another in the body of Christ. Instead of a consumer mentality, how? what can I get out of this? Let's come... say, how can I serve? How can I serve the Lord Jesus, who is the servant of all? Well, then, last question, then we'll be done. Last application. Look to Christ and ask for great mercy. I don't have time to give you the story, but if you look in your Bibles, Mark often does this thing where he does sandwiches. Now, I don't want to get you hungry, but he does a sandwich with his narrative. He puts it together where he'll put, a, he'll put an episode, then he puts another episode, and then he puts another episode, and he's intending you to read the whole thing like a sandwich. And the thing in the middle helps interpret what comes before and after. Okay? If that's confusing, just delete it. Delete it from the tape. But I'm not, I don't have time to go to the other part of the, of the sandwich, but if you're just look at your Bibles... Look at your notes uh, or Bible. Look at verses 46 down to 52. What does Jesus do in 46 to 52? Anybody want to call it out? He heals a blind man. And what's the blind man's name? Bartimaeus. And so Jesus is continuing to go down the road right after this whole thing about serving and about greatness. And remember, what did the disciples ask earlier, the two disciples? What did they want in one word? Glory. 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 So they're going along and Bartimaeus starts crying out, blind Bartimaeus. Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy. I want mercy. And strikingly, notice what Jesus asks Bartimaeus in verse 51. And Jesus said to him, Notice the question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, who asked that question earlier? <laughs> Jesus asked the same exact question to the disciples What do you want me to do for you? And they asked for glory. Bartimaeus is wiser, he can't see yet he sees more than those disciples. He says, you're the son of David. I want mercy. One commentator said, what Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up in insight. (laughs) Jesus is the friend of sinners. And Jesus is the one who can make the blind to see. And so Jesus lavishes mercy on Bartimaeus and we're told verse 50 after giving him sight he says in verse 52 Jesus said go your way your faith has made you well and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way beloved that's the question that I want to leave you with this morning. So what do you want Jesus to do for you in 2024? Do you want glory? Or do you want mercy? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Where in the world would we be this morning apart from your word? And Lord, we thank you for giving us such clear vision of the Savior of sinners in your word. And Father, we pray that as long as you lend us breath, we would be those who seek to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to adore the Lord Jesus Christ, to exalt him, to worship him, to follow him, to imitate him, to serve others for his sake and for his glory.